episode 334. Do consumers ditch high-cost providers after shopping with price transparency tools? Today, I speak with Sunitha Desai, PhD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let's discuss price transparency, which isn't an end unto itself, obviously. The great hope of price transparency, or at least one of them, is that it furthers consumerism, which is also not an end unto itself, obviously. The great hope of consumerism is that it effectively forces the healthcare industry to straighten up and fly right. Before I dig into this, let me make one critically important point for context. Enabling consumers to find low-cost providers is not the only goal of price transparency. Employers should be hiring companies to do cost analytics and bring them back insights, which should, along with quality indicators, be part of network selection or direct contracting or bundle considerations. Add to that something I heard Katie Talento say the other day. She said something along the lines of anyone sitting around whiteboarding cockamamie reasons to keep their prices secret. How is that not corrupt? You're trying to conceal the prices that your patients will ultimately be responsible to pay as per, by the way, the financial document that every provider I've ever seen makes patients sign on the way in. You, patient, are ultimately responsible for the bill here. Don't be thinking otherwise. What I hear the other day, which is a great message for patients everywhere, if you can't see who's holding the bag, check your hands. It might be you. But let's get down to the business of this particular podcast here. As I tend to contemplate many complicated things, I like to play a kind of simplified version of Moneyball, otherwise known as Sabermetrics, if you're as big a geek as I am. You start at the end state and you work backwards. If the goal of price transparency, ultimately, is to drive the usage to better, lower-priced providers, then people slash patients have to be shopping. Okay, for patients to shop, there has to be shopping tools. For shopping tools to exist, there has to be price transparency. If you look at this flow in reverse, that's the progression needed to realize the goal of disrupting the healthcare system and causing competition and healthcare providers and others to get themselves subjected to free market forces to up their game and lower their prices. All right, so going through this again in a bullet point list that will be in the show notes or subscribe to our newsletter. You know, if you subscribe to our newsletter on the website, every week you get actually show notes and that includes the transcription of the introduction of every show. Okay, so here are the seven steps to get from price transparency to the impact of consumerism to create healthcare quality overall improvements and for costs to go down. Okay, step one, price transparency. Step two, shopping tools. Step three, people shopping. Step four, people taking the information gleaned from the shopping tools and putting it to use. Step five, higher quality, lower priced providers get more business. Step six, lower quality, higher priced providers get stomped on by the market. Step seven, healthcare quality overall improves and costs go down. 
It's funny because we talk about concepts like the impact of consumerism all the time, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody literally write out the mechanics of that progression. And this is an incredibly valuable exercise, I think anyway, because as we all know so well, to actually achieve anything, we have to be willing to check out how it's going to learn some lessons and then evolve our approach accordingly. The short version of the how's it going based on available research is that most people, your average civilians, I mean, do not really use shopping tools when they are made available. Good news is if there's advertising and other outreach efforts, then this number of users goes up. So then the next question becomes, what are people then doing with the information? Are they heading to lower cost providers? Bad news is, sadly, no, they do not tend to do so. Let me just interject right here. There's going to be two different reactions to what I just said above. One reaction is going to be kind of anger. I just kicked somebody's sacred cow and they're all earmuffs right now. Another reaction is the more productive one. And frankly, it's the only re reaction for anyone who is truly committed to transforming healthcare. That reaction is, huh, so then how do we incrementally improve? What are the barriers to this mechanism of action, so to speak? And how are we going to then address those barriers to get the results that we're looking for here? This is what the conversation with Sunita Desai, PhD, is about today. Sunita Desai is a health economist and assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She and her colleagues have done extensive research into everything that we discussed today. We talk in depth about the barriers that consumers face when trying to make price information actionable. And you got to know what the problem is if you're going to solve for it. IRL. If we want consumerism to work, we must overcome its challenges. It would be nice if we didn't need to, but we do. Hey, one last thing, and this is going to be a recommendation. I really enjoyed Adam Grant's latest book, which is called Think Again. He talks for an entire book, basically, about how most of us are accustomed to defining ourselves in terms of our beliefs, our ideas, and our ideologies. He says that this becomes a serious issue when our opinions become so sacred that our totalitarian ego leaps in to silence any counter arguments, squash contrary evidence, and close the door on learning effectively. My name is Stacey. Director, this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Sunita Desai, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be pretty familiar with price transparency, but maybe you just want to level set on why is everybody so interested in price transparency right about now? Definitely. I think we take for granted the way patients navigate healthcare today. In general, patients don't know how much service or, or receiving care is going to cost them before they get it. And this is kind of just accepted as the way it is, but it's very atypical to not know how much something is going to cost before we buy it. So price transparency aims to provide patients with price information before they receive service. And this would allow them to shop, to price shop and compare providers and ideally select providers who are lower cost. If you're talking about the research that you've done and other research that that's available, what were you and others attempting to uncover? 
price transparency has been considered a cornerstone to improving value in our healthcare system. So conceptually, you know, we can think about price transparency as part of a broader movement of consumerism. And so price transparency enables consumerism because, again, it allows patients to shop and, and consider prices before they receive care. And the idea behind price transparency is it's not only that patients will be able to achieve savings because patients will identify and select lower cost providers. But over the longer term, the hope is that price transparency will generate savings more broadly because it will ignite price competition in the market and kind of incentivize providers to lower prices overall. So if we're thinking about this, what are the components then to achieve consumerism in healthcare? I'm assuming that transparency is a part of this, but maybe you could clarify. I think it's helpful to think about there being two aspects to consumerism. The first is incentives and the second is information. So with incentives, the idea is that patients need skin in the game in order to care about prices and and make their healthcare decisions with prices in mind. And so this has been operationalized primarily through high deductible health plans. Then moving on, I guess, to the second component of consumerism is information. And so if we're giving patients the incentive to care about prices, we have to give them the information to actually identify lower priced options. And that's where price transparency comes in. So what I'm understanding is that skin in the game is probably another term for cost shifting to consumers, which is what the high deductible health plans effectively do. You know, that what you're trying to do is get the the consumer to bear more of a cost of the services and then therefore they have a responsibility to pay attention to that cost. If the insurance carrier um, or the employer is paying for the full share of something and the service is in quotes free, then you're not going to get patients that have the incentive or enough skin in the game to use that language to pay attention to the information that they may have in order to price shop because they've got no incentive to do so. Exactly. You put it better than me. I had the advantage of listening to you. If you put both of those two things together, the, the skin in the game and the information, what do we hope happens? We have tremendous price variation within the same community. So for the same service in the same area, we see drastically different prices. There is a study that compared lower back MRI prices across providers within one region. So this was within a hundred mile radius of San Francisco and prices across providers ranged from $475 to $6,221. Wait, wait. $475 to $6,000. Yes. And, you know, this type of variation within the same market, 10, 15, even 20-fold price differences is representative. We see this all over the country. And importantly, in many cases, there aren't quality differences, which means that if we can get consumers who are going to the $6,000 clinic to go to the $400 clinic, we would generate savings without compromising quality. That's what price transparency sets out to do. If all providers had the same prices or similar prices, then the value of price transparency and facilitating price shopping would be minimal. Maybe let's start out. Talk a little bit about about the the research that you did. You know, like what were you looking to do? Yeah, so I have done along with with colleagues several studies examining the impacts of price transparency. There are 
you know, a couple of different types of price transparency tools. Pretty much all major insurers offer price transparency tools, and many employers also contract with third parties to offer price transparency tools to their employees. So a patient can look for an MRI, lower back MRI, for example, and then see prices across providers in their geographic area. And they will also get out-of-pocket estimates. My colleagues and I have examined these price transparency tools and used healthcare claims data to see if access to this price information through these tools is associated with use of lower cost providers and is associated with you know, lower healthcare spending and out-of-pocket costs. Was there any methodology that you want to talk about here? In our first study in this, we compared employees of two large companies that offered access to a price transparency tool to employees of other companies that did not have access to such a price transparency tool. And we looked at changes in their spending before and after the price transparency tool. So this is a differences and differences methodology, which is commonly used in health policy and health economics research. We found that basically there was no decline in healthcare spending among the group of the employees of the two large companies that had access to the price transparency tool. So you didn't see any decline. Were people actually using the tool or they were using it and then not doing anything different? We saw that there was very low utilization of the price transparency tool, which is presumably why we didn't find evidence of savings. And, you know, these findings are consistent with, you know, the broader literature on price transparency that has come out since then. In general, we are seeing that these price transparency tools have very low utilization and therefore they are not generating savings. Let me just throw a wrinkle here because I was talking to a friend of mine. It's funny because I guess you probably have these same conversations. People know what your line of work is and then you hear all the stories. (laughs) So I was talking to a friend of mine who was getting an MRI. She works for a, pick one of the biggest companies you can think of. She works there. So someone called her, like it was actually an outreach and said, hi, I see you have scheduled an MRI and she was going to go get it at a hospital. So I'm sure it was one of the more expensive MRIs. Person on the phone said, I see you're scheduled for an MRI. There's multiple places that you can go get this MRI. Let me run through them with you. So she said, was there a cost difference? And the person said, I don't know. So she's like, I don't understand. Like, oh, I'm just going to go get it where I originally set it up. That's where my doctor said to go get it. Like, she was baffled. I guess I say all this to say that there's probably different calibers, let's just say of price trend. Like, I don't know if if the the customer service person was supposed to provide her with cost (laughs) information and just sort of failed to do so or what was going on there. Definitely. I have not heard of those examples. I thought you were going in kind of a different direction. I know that there are like efforts to try to to reach out to enrollees to point them towards lower cost MRI facilities. But uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, I mean, I don't think anybody who tries to engage employees is, I'm going to say, sitting up in their chair completely shocked (laughs) that, you know, a tool that was provided has fairly low engagement. I mean, across the board, this is a struggle. There's a lot of benefits that employees have that bottom line, they're not taking advantage of these tools. 
I think the reason that our research and other research has not found the impacts of price transparency on spending is obviously because of low utilization. But maybe the more interesting question is why is there such low utilization? I mean, how is it that you can provide access to price information to enrollees and they don't use it? You know, when we again, when we kind of step back and think about that in the context of pretty much every other market, that doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't. And let's talk about that. I think compared to where we were maybe four or five years ago, thinking about price transparency and high deductibles as some sort of silver bullet, enthusiasm around price transparency has certainly dampened. And, you know, it's clearly not just going to be as simple as putting price information out there and we will unleash competition in our healthcare markets. But I do think it's useful to think about what the potential barriers are and think through whether we can address those barriers to make price transparency more effective. Let's go go through these barriers then. So what are you yeah. going to say the first one is? I would say first and maybe like the most easily addressable would be technical issues. So maybe these tools are still just not really up to par. There might be access issues, usability issues. They just need to be more consumer friendly. That would be a pretty you know, simple fix. But obviously, we suspect that that there are some more fundamental issues at play. Well, I mean, let me just interject there, because if my friend, you know, her experience is any example, I mean, maybe that was a technical issue. Maybe the other MRI places that were being suggested were actually the lower cost ones. It's just operator error or something that the guy, the, you know, the training issue, he couldn't tell her. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, prices in healthcare are more complicated. So certainly... There are these technical and information complexities when it comes to healthcare. Okay, so, so I agree that that could be an issue. Okay, so we've got number one, technical issues. What do we got for number two? I would say most price transparency websites to date have been targeting the information mostly passively to consumers and they bypass the physician who is probably one of the most influential, you know, people in a patient's healthcare decision making. So there are some efforts to target price information at the point of care to the physician with the hope that physicians can engage in a cost of care conversation with consumers and can through shared decision making help patients price shop or, or navigate options. And I know that's going on to maybe a greater degree with pharmaceuticals. What's happening in the pharmaceutical space? I interviewed Cam Huntress from RX Review, and what they're doing is putting the price of prescriptions for the patient into the e-prescribing module so that when a doctor is prescribing something, he or she can see the cost of the various medications and obviously make cost part of the prescribing decision, really. So you're suggesting that maybe the same thing can happen for medical services. That's exactly the kind of solution I'm thinking of. I think that medications are probably ideal for this type of physician-focused price transparency because we're less worried about the physician's own financial incentive when it comes to drugs. I think that the scope for for such physician-focused price transparency with other types of services might be more limited because For example, when it comes to other services, physicians who are part of larger health systems may have more incentive, either direct or indirectly, to refer within the system. Right. So they're playing the RVU game. 
But it's interesting though, I, I just saw a study and it was from 2013. So it was kind of old, but you, what you just said reminded me of it. I think it was from coming out of John Hopkins and they showed that just by showing physicians the price of lab tests, the average number of lab tests declined the insight that they were drawing, and I'm remembering this, so if anyone wants to look it up, you should. But I think the point there was that the number of lab tests declined because the doctors were not ordering kind of like nice to have lab tests when they could see what the prices were. So I think this is a really interesting point. There you go. You know, there's certainly potentially scope for engaging physicians on costs in healthcare, which to date, they, they really haven't been engaged in. So we've got two issues thus far, which you have looked into solutions for. We have technical issues, which, as you said, are probably pretty easily fixed with some better UX or training or what have you. And then the second one is the error of bypassing providers. And, you know, we, we talked about a couple of different ways that we can try to redress that. Is there any other barriers you have identified Yeah, even with high deductible health plans, there still could be issues of patients not having sufficient incentives to price shop. So, you know, even with a high deductible health plan, there still can be a pretty narrow window around which patients are really exposed to what we call the marginal price of care. In particular, once a patient has spent through their deductible or if they even if they anticipate that they will, their out-of-pocket costs will vary less based on where they go. In these cases, even having access to price information may not change patients' decisions about where to get care. So there have been some new models different payers are experimenting with to try to expose patients to the actual cost of care. One example is uh, CalPERS in California has experimented with what they call reference-based pricing. There's a study about CalPERS reference-based pricing scheme that focused on about five or six different types of surgeries. And so under reference-based pricing, the payer would basically cover a service up to some reference price. So for example, CalPERS will pay for hip surgery up to $6,000. So if a patient goes to a provider with a price below $6,000, then they're going to be fully covered. But if they go to a provider with prices above $6,000, then they would be responsible for that difference between the provider's price and the reference price. This is different from a copay in that the patient, you know, really above $6,000, what they have to pay out of pocket will vary based on the actual price. There's been research that has shown that this type of scheme not only incentivizes patients to go to providers below that reference price, but it actually also incentivized some providers to bring their prices below the reference price. Now, this is positive and encouraging, but, you know, it remains to be seen how such a model could be replicated in other parts of the country. Just a couple of things. Number one, you are definitely using the term reference-based pricing in a little bit of a different way than maybe some of our listeners may be familiar with. You know, RBC can refer to some percentage over Medicare in in other contexts. So that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, just to paraphrase real quick, what we're talking about here is the employer says, we're going to pay up to a certain amount for some service 
like maternity is a real common one. So we're going to pay up to $6,000 for a live birth. And if you, and then I'm, I'm assuming that these programs also come with information. As you said, there's two components, skin in the game and exactly. information, where, wherein, you know, the employer is giving the employee. And by the way, if you go to this hospital, it's going to be $6,000. So you're covered. But if you go to the one across town that has art in the lobby and fountains, then it's going to be $7,500. So therefore you're going to be responsible for $1,500, that $1,500 overage. Exactly. The one thing that Dr. Mark Fendrick brought up when he was on the show is the relative value of things may not correspond with their price. So one of the issues with in giving consumers skin in the game is that in many respects, what you're disincenting are expensive things and what you're incenting are cheap things. And that may or may not be aligned with the value of whatever it is. So for example, like, you know, the quintessential example is like insulin. Insulin's not cheap, right? But it's really, really valuable. So if you have somebody who is trying to figure out like the supply and demand curve, obviously the more expensive stuff has less demand. So what you don't want to have happen is that patients decide to forego expensive things, which may be very important, right? Definitely. That is something troubling that that research has been finding in the past couple of years about high deductible health plans, that high deductible health plans are giving patients skin in the game, and they are successful in reducing spending. But when we dig a little deeper to examine exactly what type of healthcare they're they're reducing, it's reducing both high-value care as well as low-value care. So, you know, when we think about kind of the impacts over a longer term, this type of reduction of high-value care can obviously lead to worse health outcomes and, and higher spending over the longer term. I think that's definitely something that we need to grapple with when it comes to high deductible health plans. They're a very blunt tool to reduce spending. On the other hand, we also know that in many cases, high prices don't correspond to higher quality. So if we think about price transparency as a tool for a patient to compare different MRI providers or different lab clinics, or even other services, the research has you know, generally shown that there is not a strong correlation between prices of providers and quality. Again, the idea is conditional on a patient needing and uh, receiving care if we can get them to go to a lower price, but same or even in many cases, higher quality provider we can generate savings without compromising value. And so that's why many of the price transparency tools focus on more quote unquote shoppable services where we're less worried about significant quality differences. Many have said that cost is only half of the equation. And if you're transparent with cost without being transparent with quality, you're putting patients in a weird spot. Because if I'm going to get like a total knee replacement, in every other realm of someone's life, the cheapest is not, generally speaking, the best. So if I'm thinking about I'm going to get a total knee replacement and I can see the prices in advance, you almost wonder whether transparency in a certain way can hinder efforts to steer patients to the best place. Because if they don't have quality information, then is a patient going to necessarily pick the lowest priced place for a a service that's going to impact them for the rest of their life? 
Absolutely. Yeah. In one of our papers, we did actually find a small increase in spending among the group that was offered a price transparency tool. We didn't want to kind of read into it too much, but certainly what you're saying could be the case where you know, patients in general might associate higher prices with higher quality and be inclined to choose the higher priced provider. We obviously have to make sure that, you know, the, the three things that you you certainly mentioned, that they have enough skin in the game, that there's a good, elegant UX, CX for them, and that the, the providers are certainly involved. But based on everything that you're saying, it would almost seem like this might be something that is best left in the hands of the employer and or maybe the provider, right? That the consumers are going to need more help, like just giving them information, and giving them skin in the game might not get the desired result. Is that kind of the takeaway that we're drawing here? Is there some sort of summary takeaway or advice that you might have here? Over the last couple of years, we've certainly learned that simply putting that price information out there, giving patients access to it is not going to be enough. I think that there are a number of potential addressable barriers that could improve the effectiveness of price transparency. And moreover, I think that over time, patients might get more used to searching for healthcare prices online or using the internet when they're deciding where to get healthcare. I think we are seeing some of that a little bit more over time. For example, with kind of GoodRx has become a household name, but I think that the effects are not, it's not going to be the solution. I also think it's important to acknowledge that there are other troubling forces and trends in our healthcare system more broadly that will also over time that are also undermining the potential effectiveness of price transparency. And in particular, I'm thinking about rising healthcare prices and healthcare consolidation. If we see prices rising, patients are going to be price shopping between different providers who are all high priced. There's rapid consolidation in our healthcare system. We have ample evidence that that consolidation leads to price increases. And also it reduces the choice set for providers. And so you know, you can give a patient a price transparency tool to compare different providers, but if there are just a decreasing number of providers for them to choose between in the first place, that again is going to undermine the potential effectiveness of price transparency. I think that price transparency is still important. We should continue to chip away at it, continue to try to you know, improve it, not only as a potential tool to reduce healthcare spending, but also because we owe that information to patients and it could be beneficial for other reasons, even if they're not going to change their decision based on it. It's useful for patients to know what out-of-pocket costs that they should expect. But at the same time, I think we should be realistic, temper just our enthusiasm about price transparency as the single solution. And we should also be thinking about and addressing at multiple levels, the, these other broader issues around rising healthcare prices and consolidation. Which consumerism likely isn't going to necessarily affect. I, th I think that's the, the, the point that you're, you're making. We have all these different things going on. It's the right thing to do to ensure that a patient doesn't just get a surprise bill. I think it's David Contorno has said, every bill is a surprise bill. If you don't know how much it's going to cost before <laughs> exactly. you get it. Like, that's just not fair. It's just not 
Right. Exactly. What do you think about the hospital transparency rule? Just recently, Biden made the penalty for noncompliance, let's just say, more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts? The Trump administration, I think, pushed us into, at least in theory, broad-based price transparency by requiring hospitals to post their negotiated prices online. So if there was full compliance, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction. In practice, what we are seeing is that there's very low compliance. So in a recent study that came out in JAMA, among 100 hospitals whose websites were examined, they only found 17% full compliance with the requirements to post price information. And there's even lower compliance among the higher revenue, higher price providers. So it's possible that we see more compliance over time. One potential reason for the low compliance so far could be that the penalties for non-compliance was so low. There were about $100,000 per year, which is a drop in the bucket for most hospitals. Recently, the Biden administration has announced that they intend to increase the penalty to $2 million per year, which is substantially more. And so it's possible that that could really improve or lead to much greater compliance. But as we see often with these types of things, we are seeing workarounds that kind of would dull the effectiveness of this rule. In particular, there's been reporting showing that hospitals are really burying this information. They're making it very, it might be technically on their website, but they're making it very hard to find. In other cases, there's been some reporting that the information is not you know, it's not necessarily accurate. I think that it's a step in the right direction, but we will need to see more compliance for this information to actually be useful for patients. Sunita, if someone is interested in your work, where could they go for more information? Sure. So look me up on online. My website is uh, searchable, Sunitha Desai, and Google will lead you to my NYU website. And also feel free to to email me at sunitha.desai at nyu.edu. Fantastic. Sunita Desai, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.